Hello and welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. I hope you enjoy the show. So much farmland, a million hectares according to one estimate, is mostly unfarmable because it's erosion prone, too steep or inaccessible. In decades past, that might have been destined for forestry or just abandoned to return to scrub. Either way, the return on investment was poor, but now thanks to the emissions trading scheme, some of that land is destined to become permanent forest with emission credits earned by the landowner. The so-called carbon farming could be a lifesaver for some, though it's a worry for others, who point out that these permanent forests are typically exotics, especially pines. Colonisation, here we go again. What we need is more native nahiri, not more foreign pests, they say. Well, negotiating a way through all of this is Tamata Hoha, Hoha, a Māori-owned carbon farming business dedicated to helping Māori landowners make the most of the ETS to earn income on their marginal land. And to explain how the scheme works, I'm joined by founder and CEO Blair Jamison. Tanakwe Blair, thanks for joining me. Tanakwe Vincent. Well, so much of uh, land is kind of falls into this marginal category, or it's such a derisive term, isn't it? But um, give us a sense for Māori landowners. Just do do you know what proportion of Māori-owned land is in this marginal category, Blair? Yeah. So um, the latest figures that we've seen, and um, my work back at um, MPI Māori Agribusiness when I was in that space. Uh, we saw it roughly sit around that 90 percentile, um, and that being class six to eight lands. So that obviously the predominant mix of Fenua Māori um, would be sitting as what would be classified as marginal um, or very low in its productive sense. From that as well, um, there have been a few assessments done as to say what is actually productive to an industry level. Of that amount, uh, it's close to about, I'll keep it quite simple, but close to 20% of that um, whenua um, is meeting or is on par with industry. Um, the, the 40% under that is operating within 50% of the um, returns that you would expect from a land class such as that um, that category. And then the remaining 40% is basically non-productive, growing gorse and blackberry most of the time, if not um, being home to a number of pests. So it's really dilapidated, degrading, erosion-prone land in that lower 40%. And that 40% represents nearly half a million hectares um, across the country. That's a, that's a damning statistic as a result of, of what? Just of subsequent uh, sort of um, well, co- colonisation, I suppose, this process of um, yeah. taking the best land from Māori and uh, what giving back kind of fairly useless land. Well, useless, I mean, in, in terms of the farming yeah. definition. I mean, and, and I think you've, you've summarised it quite quite nicely. Um, it's ha- happened over a period of time. It didn't all happen in one go. Um, so we had, obviously, a lot of the land grabs, and then you saw a second wave um, of land being taken through legislative changes, and uh, even at a local and territorial authority level. Um, there are examples where we, we saw a lot of land lost um, for a whānau based on... Um, you know, things such as uh, there was f- five owners on a Fenua Māori block and then there became four, which then triggered it into general title, in which case then rates started being applied back then. And then um, there were even rules around how um, much of the land an individual Māori person could own 
um, in certain areas across the country as well. So there was a systematic um, reduction of land and basically any lands that came up to market that were attractive were bought. Um, and when we're saying being bought, they were basically forced to be sold. Um, and then you left in a space where the lands that most of the lands that Afano were left with were lands that people looked at and said, oh, it's too hard to farm, but, you know, hmm. chuck a few Maldives on the hill there and they'll be sweet as. But the reality is is that we're now in a space where we're trying to remediate that um, and we're already behind the eight ball um, just by the type of land class that it predominantly is. So, yeah, hmm. farming statistic, uh, a lot of people don't understand that. Uh, and I think that's a big part of um, our business and focus is to do what we can to support that land. Um, so when we talk about alternative forms of income and things like that, we're seeing land such as in that space on average being leased for about $80 per hectare per year um, for to complement or offset other people's farming operations. So when people say, don't do that, or Māori shouldn't be planting that land, or they shouldn't be doing this, what you are saying is effectively you only deserve or you only should be farming at $80 a hectare uh, returns and be happy with that. In short, <laughs> okay. Well, we'll get into some of the some of the oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, um, discussions of that yeah. in a minute because that's very interesting. But let's go. Uh, let's talk about um, Tamata Hohab. So, uh, how does it how does it work? And well, maybe first tell us. Uh, it sounds like a, a a beautiful kind of concept. And I know you've got this gorgeous logo. So maybe give us mm. some of the. Um, Kopapa first of the right. company, and then explain me how how does it work. Yeah, well, um, I'll give a tiny bit of whakapapa to it as well, just around from our, our point of view, and that is um, both myself and Lance Iwiko, who are the um, original founders from the um, staffing side of things. Uh, we worked for MPI, Māori Agribusiness, for a, a number of years, and Lance did over a decade in that space, and um, we got quite frustrated with finding opportunities for the whānau and saying, here's what you could do in this capacity, here's an idea, here's a feasibility study, but hey, you can't... Um, get funding from any traditional institution. It's just not a viable hmm. option. And then hmm. you know, we had the PGF and a few other things pop up, one billion trees, which provided some respite. Um, but for us, it was like, how do we keep that going longer? So for us, we were in a space of saying, how do we find more opportunities for whānau? What is it that's out there or could be out there if we put something together that would actually um, address some of that need? Yeah, yeah spent a lot of time um, liaising with different funders, um, we spent a bit of time looking through angel investors and what that could mean um, for Māori. And, you know, typically Māori don't really like to partner with people they don't have a relationship with. So we tried to broker some of those considerations in our previous capacity. But it came came um, pretty evident that there were some options out there. But in order for us to capitalise on that, we had to go out there and do it. So um, we left MPI, jumped into that space and um, have been basically connecting up uh, landowners to opportunities hmm. as part of that. We came across hmm. a few really interesting um, people in that mix. Uh, so yes, we do receive money from people who aren't born in New Zealand but are New Zealand citizens. Um, that's a key part of it is that we have people on board who support and align to our kaupapa, what we're trying to achieve. Um, but yeah, it was it's just been through existing relationships and previous life that we've lived in different areas and bringing that all together to try and find a way through. Uh, which has it, been it, pretty key. The mechanism for funding is the emissions trading scheme. Mm -hmm. um, ha explain how that works for a landowner. So someone approaches you and says, uh, I don't know, give us a scenario. This, uh, we have yeah, some iwi well, land. Uh, what, what, what do we, <clears throat> how can we work with you? Yeah, so I mean, um, typically 
the way that we approach ourselves is, is, and this is something that I would always advise people who are in this space is always go wider in what you're trying to do when you're engaging with modern landowners to actually bring them on board. So for us, what that means is we start off by having conversations with landowners and say, what is it that you're trying to achieve on your land? Um, now, it may sound like a pretty generic question, but you basically work backwards from the aspirations. So for a landowner, um, in that example, we would say, okay, well, if your aspiration is to be in high-value horticulture or if it's to be in sheep and beef or if it's to have a plethora of things that are generating income across your land blocks, um, that's all good to know. And that's actually come up with a bit of a strategy to support that. Um, and then working backwards and saying, okay, well, from that, you're going to need X, Y, and Z amount of income. You know, this is what your cash flow is going to need to look like, and here's the amount of investment that you need. And mm. then using carbon as a means of actually creating or being that enabler. So we would look at a land block and say, okay, well, you have some really marginal country over here. Let's look at that as a way to we'll plant that up, we'll support you in that space, and then the, the profit that's derived from that portion of the land can be used to finance and support in the other areas. So where some people just turn up and say, we're going to plant your whole block and walk away, um, that is of no interest to us because that doesn't actually fix anything. That just pushes the issue a generation down the line. But um, it's very much in the space of saying, landowner, what is it you're trying to achieve? How mm. can we fund you? And then saying, okay, here's the amount of planting that you would need to consider um, as part of that. So I think the, the from an examples that we're looking at this year, I think the, the greatest percentage of land that we'll be planting is just under 50% of, of, of a land block. Um, and then hmm. there are other examples where we're down the fives and tens and 15%. Um, but then even some other owners who are, we're talking to that we haven't quite got over the line yet are actually considering nearly full planting of some other portions of their land. But the intention is to save up all that money that's generated to go and buy another block, a block that they can actually effectively do something of high value on. So the carbon farming effectively is a, a kind of cash flow uh, part of the business that then allows the group to, to, to pursue their bigger goals, which they've talked to you about. Yep, yep, absolutely. I mean, and what we see is um, under the current um, offering in that space in the current market value, it's about a $6.8 billion potential earner for funeral Māori across the country. So there are some changes that are being proposed and things in that space, but um, you know, if they talk about changing some of those rules, and then we we'll obviously have that conversation around exotic and natives later um, mm. versus natives. But you know, from a from a point of view of actually doing some good to remediate and create opportunities on Māori land for Māori, um, it's about six point eight billion dollars um, that's been expected to derive uh, or lost in that space if there's any changes. Uh- I mean, it's a really significant amount of money, isn't it? And, and as you mm. say, this is kind of new finance. This is typically sort of un, non-bank finance and mm. a, a kind of a part, I suppose, of the primary sector that didn't exist, what, even maybe, well, certainly not 15 years ago, but it, perhaps uh, only sort of five mm. years ago, it's really come into existence. And what's been the uptake, Blair? Have you, you know, kind of, are you busy? Uh, are you having a hard time selling the concept? Um, look, that's a really good question. So we haven't had any problems selling the concept. Um, the way that we've structured it has been very much, uh, as you know, I may not look like it, but I am a Māori landowner myself and so are the members of our team, is that we understand the dynamic and, 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 um, and what's at play with all of these blocks. And sometimes you sit there and you explain to people how you've basically framed up your business to support them in that regard. And they've never really had anything like like that before and they've never mm. really had anything that's been so targeted. I mean, if we look at the One Billion Trees and the PGF and those other programs, basically what landowners had to do was try and 
create a Frankenstein of a project to fit the funding criteria to make <laughs> it a viable option for them to go and fund and do the work. Um, so when you now say the opposite, you're now saying, actually, we are wanting to work around your aspirations and work backwards to get to you where you want to get to rather than you having to try and put the pieces to, of, of the puzzle together yourself. Um, you've had a few people go, oh, that sounds like too good to be true. Um, but, you know, there are, there are a lot of land blocks that we're working with that are on board and um, look, we're, we're well into our allocation for seedlings and everything. And I think, and this is kind of sh- what, what's showing uh, being seen at the moment, is that when we go somewhere and we start doing some work, such as clearing the land or if there's any remediation that needs to happen, uh, you get a lot of them that are just going, oh, they actually, you know, they actually are doing what they say they're going to do. I mean, I think of an example <laughs> that um, we had um, working in the PGF space and um, we supported this whānau to acquire a digger and some machinery and that to clear their own land. And even though they signed the contracts and did everything, they still didn't believe it was going to happen um, because I've had that many examples where someone said, I've got a, I've got the deal for you or we can come up here and <laughs> do this work with you. And um, it was only until the actual the digger and the tractor drive up and we're actually being unloaded, you just saw the complete change in body language <laughs> and tone and people were coming out saying, oh, this is real. Um, and, and, yeah, and you start talking to those whānau across the motu, across everywhere in the country, and you will find on, on numerous occasions of at least four or five incidents or examples where someone has come by and said, hey, we're an economic development agency or we're a funder or we're a government agency in the space. And, um, yeah, they've been let down numerous mm. times so now there's this real hesitation to 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 start off and so um again it comes back to that conversation we had a little bit earlier around we turn up with something in our hand and that's the strategy component that's the part where we're saying we will invest in you before you, we expect anything in return and then it kind of naturally reciprocates um itself from there mm. yeah, that, there's a lot of, yeah it, and there's a lot of cost that goes into that i mean you, you've got to pay for yourself for the plan someone's paying the digger driver someone's paying for the mm-hmm. seedlings to be planted and the yep. management of the forest and so on how do those commercial terms work? How do you get paid? That's a really good question. And yes, you have to be front-loaded. Um, if you're not, I've seen plenty of groups go out there and sell these ideas or, or very similar ideas, um, but then they try and retrospectively work out their finance after they've got the people over the line. So one thing that we did um, very very cautiously in the, in the beginning was to make sure we had all our ducks in a row before we even went out and had those conversations. So had three and a half million seedlings before we even started our first conversation. And hmm. um, that was pretty key for us um, from that space. And it required a lot of faith in, from our investors, um, which we just, I guess, the stars really aligned on that stuff. Um, the timing was just, you know, it was almost divine in nature in, in some ways. But um, our process is that, yes, that we do provide all the funding. So um, we look at so I look at that from a, a, a macro perspective. So there'll be some land blocks we turn up to that will be in a pretty good state, um, or you know, this work is required. Um, if I'm allocating my budgets across all those blocks to say here's the amount I'm safe on paying in my budget, 300 bucks per hectare for land remediation. Well, there'll be some blocks that really absorb that cost um, in my budget line. So we kind of play around um, quite quite creatively in that space. Um, that being said, though, um, the returns are calculated based on a block-by-block basis. So I'm not chucking mm-hmm. everyone into a pool and saying, okay, now all the money comes in, now we're all going to spread it equally. No, it's done on a yeah. block-by-block basis. But I can write off um, a lot of that stuff and those costs um, by, by acting in that way. And also, when you start achieving the economic scale, um, I can start doing and the team can start doing that work ourselves. So we have our own uh, remediation team. I've got guys out there in the pest control space now. So we are able to internally deliver 
um, mm-hmm. a lot of those components and then work with the different people um, in the sector to do the actual quite specialised pruning and those other elements. But to, yeah, to, we... To, and to what extent is the risk carried then by the landowner? Because you are covering your own costs in those first, mm-hmm. I don't know, how, how many years would it typically take for you to recover your costs in some... Yeah, so it ranges from about four to seven years, but most most of the time it's around that six or seven um, years that we start actually transitioning or crossing over into um, into some profit. So yeah, we do carry a lot of risk in this. Um, for the landowner, they federal Māori, you can't lose it. Um, and the only way you lose federal Māori is under the Crimes Act. So they have no chance to lose the land um, mm-hmm. under this type of arrangement. We actually put the security... Uh, through a forestry right. So we have a security on those trees, not on the actual land itself. And that forestry right gives mm. us that protection for that period of time. And um, within that forestry right, we, we have the agreed terms, everything's, you know, you can do an OAO on, on any, or any of that stuff, OAA, sorry, on any of that stuff, and it's all pretty um, pretty clear and um, there's nothing being pulled over anyone's eyes. And um, that is basically our form of security. Um, what we do ask for landowners and is um, the only thing that they have to, basically do is not cut the trees down um, or mm-hmm. if we are going to cut some trees down we have to do that through an agreed process because there are liabilities for them if they do cut the trees down but besides that the risk of the of the risk is borne by us and the, mm. and considering the profit you know we budgeted this out on being around that 45 50 bucks for a pretty um uh per nz unit around the, the price of sale of carbon it's now sitting around 75 76 so uh, what that means is that we are you know from day one, we're almost operating in a, in a very productive space. And um, hmm. we don't have any intention so, to hang around for too long. Eh? And that, that's another part, sorry, is what we wanted to capture is that, yes, it's a partnership arrangement. We mean it in the true sense of being partners. Um, but, you know, we have a term that we're there for to cover our costs and then carry things through. But there are also landowners who have asked us to hang on for a lot longer. And that's not in the same 50-50 arrangement. That's probably a comfort arrangement to say, well, if we want to transition forestry or if we want to do this or if we want to come up with a bit of a customised project, um, then we ha- we can hang around for as long as um, really desired in that space. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I mean, the price of carbon seems to be only going in one direction. It's the question is just how, how fast will it go there and how high will mm. it go? If, mm. if it does go up, who's the winner out of that for between you and the landlord? Like, do you... Do you keep the, the the upside in that arrangement or is that a, a shared experience? <clears throat> well, look, uh, oh, so so the, the difference between us and other groups is that it's a partnership, right? So any, if the price goes up, Māori landowners do just as well as, as we do uh, in mm-hmm. carrying that risk. For us, it means we can actually, you know, potentially bring the term to a different period or whatever that looks like if we're working mm-hmm. with landowners. But yeah, um, other examples I have seen is when people get like a lease or something and the price goes up and it's like, well, sorry, we're taking most of the cake and you get your little, yeah. your business at the bottom. It's like, I have no interest in that. And, um, you know, I don't know how people operate in that space. But um, now for us, it's, as things go up, it's a 50-50. Um, the cost for our staffing and whatnot is, is borne by us. The only thing that's um, charged out from a staffing point of view is um, typically just the intensive, intensive nature of what pest control is required and mm. also just the time of trading of the unit. So um, we keep our mm. costs down as much as we possibly can. But, yeah, you're right. It, it is expected to go up. And up, um, the government have made a few proposed changes around um, exotics not continuing on after a certain period of time, which in effect would actually probably, in my view, would um, you know basic supply and demand principles. If you're decreasing the amount of supply that's projected to be on the market, the price goes up sooner. And um, for people who are worried about the risk of um, 
you know, the, the international units coming back online again. Um, the thing that we're quite excited about is if that did happen is that we are what's classified as an ESGE program. So, you know, we exhibit both the environmental and the social good and what we have to do. So mm, I'll mm. go through some examples later. But if those units go to the international markets, you know, people are paying 150 euros a, a, a unit overseas for that type of thing. So, you know, Māori landowners in that space um, will do will do very well if they're with us and, and partnered huh. up in the program. That's so interesting. So, uh, if if those units were to be issued internationally, they would effectively just kind of operate as a market a, a market mm-hmm. price rather than a set price set set mm-hmm. by you know the, right. the domestic setting. Mm. And we'd be we'd be a premium offering. You know, we offer we actually. You know, there's a lot of guys out there greenwashing their stuff, mm. um, but not many people would get an offering saying you are actually literally putting a roof over people's heads. There's examples where we go to where people don't have running water. They have a, a shared outdoor long drop that's shared between three or four homes. You know, it's examples and things that we're working in that space. You're like you're literally changing people's lives, and they are good, clean credits. Um, they're not being greenwashed in any way. Mm. Um, we are literally in the game of actually changing and supporting indigenous communities such as Maori. So, mm. yeah, for us, it's um, it's quite an, not an exciting proposition. I mean, it's, it's something we'd react to, but um, in that space, we are seeing there's a premium market for credits. Mm. People can actually put on their on their all their marketing material or whatnot. So this is a good that we're doing. We're not just buying greenwash credits. Um, it's actually something really valuable and um, yeah, seen on the, on the international stage to be something um, pretty unique. There's a lot of concern about the trees themselves, isn't there? And I mm-hmm. see that on your website, you've got three trees. You're doing eucalypts, pinus radiata, and uh, polonia. Yeah, we do do we do do Lusitanica and a few other species, but look, those are the three main mix. We just like to classify or put online and say that's our what we call our baseline species, mm, um, mm. and then work from there. Yeah. So the the criticism from um, oh, the, the likes of Damien Salmon, especially, she's very vocal about this, but there are yeah. others as well uh, saying, "Well, hang on a minute, we're now incentivising." Uh, you know, kind of vast tracts of land being planted in. A foreign species, mm-hmm. uh, what we need is more natives. If we're mm-hmm. actually going to grow forests here, permanent forests, mm-hmm. we need to incentivize landowners to be plant native trees, manuka and mm-hmm. you know, all the rest of it. Um, mm-hmm. So, well, let's deal with first with um, the question of uh, are you concerned about being responsible for planting that many exotic forests? Um, I'm going to say something that might be quite controversial, but no, um, I'm not. And, um, and and I'll address some of those other concerns because um, what we see in the space is you get people, you know, go, oh, you're planting all these pine trees. And look at these, these examples of these pine forests um, where they've done some bad stuff. And you see them going, it wasn't the pine that did anything bad. It was the way it was applied, right? So we see guys who go and they'll plant 1,200 stems a hectare They'll then trim it down to 500, and by the time it comes to harvest, they're down at around about 300 stems a hectare. So they're sitting there going, why the heck did you just cut down, you know, three quarters of your stock to get to where you <laughs> wanted to get to in that space? Of course you're going to have all the issues that go along with that. And then you get the people who say, well, pine is not a, not a good nurse crop. Well, we've got reports by the likes of Adam Forbes, chief ecologist and guys across New Zealand, uh, that are actually showing, well, no – Pine is actually is, is a really good nurse, nurse crop species, but it's again how you apply it. So, I mean, if you go and plant 1,200 stems a hectare of anything, 
it's not good because it's a monoculture. Um, if, but if we go out there and we say, okay, we're going to plant 500 stems a hectare or 400 or 300, and you're creating a whole lot of light wells, I mean, there are plenty of examples in this country where you can go to and see a, a really abundant uh, native forestry or a, a native re-establishing forestry block underneath Radiata. Now, that may sound like, oh, you, know, you can't say that. It's like, well, even go to Rotorua and you look underneath the um, – the uh, redwood forest I've got there and, and when I've done those five mm-hmm. to ten meter spacings, you walk under there and you tell me if you can even tell that you're not in a native forest. And, and I've been across to many different blocks of people where you've had a eucalyptus baseline and say you've got 70 eucalypts per hectare and you've got 4,000 natives all around it. You're not going to know the difference. And quite frankly, the animals don't know the difference. And if we put in a space and work with, um, with coming up with a mix that's appropriate, um, I challenge many people to show me any real tangible difference. And then you hear other people say, oh, well, actually, um, you know, there's no examples of that um, to date. It's like, yeah, that's because we've been doing it wrong for a long period of time. <laughs> that, doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that we can't correct or we can't actually take, go through a process to make that right. But, hmm. you know, there are plenty of examples where people have scattered pine at, at, a, at a rate that's far lower and you have a whole lot of natives growing up through it. Um, hmm. It's the intensive monoculture that, and the intensive planting, the density is the issue. Um, hmm. It's not so much the actual species or are they exotic or native. So the key to this, you think, is is management, and then that would include pest management, right? So you're mm-hmm. creating you're creating yep. an environment where um, pests can go nuts. So th- this is part of your remuneration that you're going to be paid to maintain these forests. Absolutely. I mean, there's the, the really bad examples and the examples that we see media and all these different groups cling on to is you've got a farm, you know, in the wider up or you've got that attention to buy that um, pig station up in Tiki Tiki, uh, near, near Gisborne, sorry, and um, it's a very much a, a plant and dump, plant and walk away scenario. And, you know, there's those examples that are absolutely shocking that are just, you've got a few people who have seen an opportunity, um, a, a, a window of an opportunity to just to plant it up and walk away. Now, that is not the um, predominant mix of what we're seeing in the space. Actually, that's actually the outliers we you typically see. And there's a lot of guys who are in there and they are thinning and pruning and doing all the work they need to do. It's a shame that we've got some of these big areas or big stations or quite notable areas um, having done some stuff like that, um, which is, yeah, is not too good. But if you can exhibit the mix, and as I just touched on before, um, you come up with a process where you have an active management in place that is enduring or that is, is part of that program, then um, you only stand to win. So for us, you know, if we want to talk about a deal with landowners, like, you know, we could hang around for 30 years where we could transition you to a native, uh, a native scenario. Um, if you wanted to let it play out longer, and there are examples in this country where they have, you know, old man pine has been falling over at around 70, 80, 90 years, but underneath that is an indigenous canopy. So, you're sitting there going, yes, it's not the perfect scenario um, under that arrangement, but if I could, if I could turn up, to, turn around and say, well, in 50 years, I will give you 100% native forestry at no cost to you, and we can encourage all the other opportunities that surround that. So you get income to actually create enduring jobs, you get uh, income to actually provide investment on your whenua. Um, we will take direct steps to reintroduce species into, the, into the, those environments, and I've, I've done that a number of times over the past in my, uh, my waterways background. And if I said that to you, here's a, what we want to get to. If I can tell you you can get there in 50 years without having to touch your pockets, what would you say as a, as a Māori landowner who typically lives hand-to-mouth quite often um, in those spaces? And every single time we've had a conversation with people in that space, um, we've gone from, we want 100% natives, we want to start with 100%. Mm. 
mm-hmm. all the way to sweet, let's get on there and let's get it done because <laughs> they know that if you don't if you don't do this and this opportunity isn't there, we'll be having the same conversations in 25 years' time. And, and I challenge these people who come out and say, um, yeah, we should, we should be planting natives from day one. I mean, our natives like to be in a new species. Our native Nahiri are like our whanau. They like to be surrounded. They like to be supported. We are stronger collectively than we are individually. That also applies for our forestry. So you, you go and you go plant a native uh, seedling in a bare paddock, a whole lot of them. Yes, you'll get manuka surviving, but I've seen plenty of plantations where they've tried to put other things in there and they either end up as food for goats or something like that. There was never enough money to do the fencing, to do the pest control, mm. and you've basically mm. just fed, fed pests. I mean, that's in effect what you've done. And there's no supply of natives to even touch on into these other areas like what's been talked about. So when people say, oh, we should be planting more natives, um, who's going to fund it? I mean, seri- I mean, it's a serious question. Who is? That's a very good question. But I suppose my, when when you said you know we painted that scenario and you said how would you react, I would say oh, I'm going to get a, ultimately a native forest for free. It sounds too good to be true. And there's a lot of trust here that you as an organisation mm-hmm. can continue to maintain these forests, right? And, it, mm-hmm. and and we're not talking sort of next year. We're talking five, ten, twenty. 30 yep. years out, still manage, still responsible for maintaining, or at least the landowner is responsible yep. for maintaining this forest. There's, there's a lot of trust involved. Absolutely. And there's a couple of ways we can we can do the management without having to get in there with a chainsaw as well. I mean, one, one thing that w- was touched on by some ecologists I was listening to, which I really took to heart, was, you know, you can actually go into an area and plant, say, if you look at a land block and you say, okay, I'm going to plant 100 stems a hectare of, this, of, a, of a eucalypt we know is going to do really, really well. We're actually, on top of that, we're going to plant a whole lot of other eucalypts that we know are going to struggle, that are going to be, um, they're not going to grow that well. Um, you, yes, you'll get the returns from the exotic perspective, but they will naturally be out-competed because we've put the wrong tree in the wrong place speci- deliberately in some scenarios. So you know, it comes up with a bit of a mix there. Other 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 points that you made, yeah, it is a, it is a trust thing. There is a, obviously um, desire to be enduring. And, and the way that we, we have approached that to date is we have worked with a number of landowners and said, okay, if we can achieve some economic scale in an area, um, you know, there's a, there's a group over in Tiki Tiki at the moment, it's like, and they're going, well, I'll go out there and I'll train and send as many of you guys away to Victoria of Canterbury and you can get all your degrees and qualifications, we'll pay for all that. We're investing in you. Um, you know, as part of our replenishing and clearing and thinning program, we'll pay for all that as long as you're coming back to your own whenua and remediating and actually taking mm-hmm. those steps. So if there's a plan and a goal in place and you're actually pre-investing forward in people, you know, you can get to the outcome by saying, well, yes, we, we, we may disappear at the 20-year mark, um, but you have every means now of actually doing that yourself. And that, that's a, mm-hmm. a new space for our whenua to find themselves in. And again, if you want us to be in there longer, um, and even contract for that period, for, for that length, that's perfectly fine by us because mm-hmm. um, I have every intent to be in here until I'm an old man with a Zimmer frame, in all honesty, <laughs> because um, it'd be really nice to see these things, um, not just go for that immediate cash flow, but it's like, yes, we can actually provide you that opportunity and um, we, we back it. Well, I hope that's true. Um, the government are making some, or they're proposing some pretty interesting changes around permanent forests, uh, ultimately, by the sound of it, kind of uh, eliminating exotics as an option for the ETS. Am I right about that? And if I am, how, how does that affect your company and also the proposition to landowners? Yeah, so for this immediate year, it doesn't do too much. Um, but yes, enduring-wise, um, it has 
the opportunity for some significant impacts. So for Māori and for Māori landowners, and I'm not sharing this from my own perspective, there's um, uh, Napoa Tane, which is a Māori collection of forestry interests and a lot of whenua Māori landowners. And there's actually a lot of iwi hapu who have settled um, on the principles of having forestry rights and access to forestry long term mm. that this will affect. So, I mean, I, firstly, I can't believe this is even really being proposed because you know it doesn't make really any sense if you take it from a perspective of, you know, if, if I was looking at, if I was a minister and I was saying, how can we remediate this? All I would be doing is putting a, um, some caveats in there saying, no class one to five land should be planted in permanent exotic forestry. Um, or, you know, you actually come up with a, species, a thing saying just radiata. We just want to exclude radiata um, because in certain areas because that is not their, an appropriate species and or may not be seen to be an appropriate species. Um, but, you know, we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater potentially here because there are some really phenomenal exotic species such as the eucalypts, which can give you six months of, of pollen and, and additional opportunities and habitat for our native bird life and food and things like that. So, unfortunately, mm-hmm. what it's become is... Um, Pine really endears itself, like you hear the word carp, right? Like you hear carp, you hear pine, you think pest, you don't want to, you know, it's just yuck, I don't want to touch it. It's, um, you've, you're basically from day one, you've got your, you're pushing the, the proverbial up a hill to try and get people over the line on it. But it's actually saying, well, even if the minister just excluded that, and even if the minister just excluded the class one to four lands, which are the two main arguments um, that, that are in this being, being proposed, mm-hmm. um, we, have, we have a workable solution. And that's all they really had to do. But look, anyway, it's 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 quite frustrating from the fact of this is the first opportunity, uh, going right back to the earlier um, corridor that we had around, um, you know, the, the, the status of Māori land in this country. This is the first chance that Whenua Māori has really had on a, on a macro level to really derive some significant returns. And um, when we're looking at these land blocks, if they aren't forested, they actually have previously been forested. So we're actually talking about foresting lands that, that were at some point cut down. So we're not talking mm-hmm. about the beautiful flat paddocks. We're not talking about these land blocks that are, you know, class one, three, and four, and five. Uh, we're talking about the stuff that you look at and you get the sweats thinking, am I even going to, I can't imagine even <laughs> walking up there because I get tired. You know what I mean? It's not, it's that type of land. So, is, is there an argument? Around, oh, well, yeah, I'm just wondering if the, if the argument is not so much excluding exotics, but including native species in the ETS in a more effective way so that you are incentivized to go ahead and plant. Oh, look, if they did, um, look, I don't, first of all, I think that there's, a, there's a resourcing issue that would, that, would, that would be applied in that space. So, I mean, like we've got guys who we're working with who have spent seven or eight million bucks to try and gear up to, to develop their nurseries to take exotics. The nursery containers and things and the operational side of things don't work with natives the same. Some of those have to carry on for two years. They can't grow in the same containers. The root stocks are different. You have a whole lot of Quite, yeah, at a nursery level, you've got a, quite a lot of administrative changes and, and lost costs in there. So, I mean, I would be expecting a lot of these nurseries to really fire back at this as well. Um, but if you're talking about how do we get more natives in the ground and the government came up with a way, they'd have to come up with something pretty unique um, for us to still be able to offer what we do in that space. And there's been discussions around biodiversity credits, um, which have been thrown around a little bit. Look, I can't see the government getting that in in moving at a pace uh, that that has been mentioned to even counteract this 1st of January exclusion date they're talking about 
I mean, it took them a long time to stand up even the one billion trees and stuff. I, I can't imagine that they'd, with any mm. haste, be able to stand up a, a, a biodiversity credit program and how you'd weight that and how you'd test that and how would you order that. Um, but, you know, there, there are some ways that they could actually – so we could do assessments to show just how much carbon is being sequestered by native forests. I mean, we, it's a pretty blunt mechanism as it currently stands, right? So you basically mm. go out there and you measure the trees. You send that off to MPI and say, here's what um, our growth rates have been. They come back to you and say, okay, here's how much credits you get. But we all, we all know that you know, underneath all the, um, the, the soil, the you know, carbon is stored in the roots as well. We all know that there's, there's other ways of sequestering carbon out there. But um, I don't see... Um, I'm not trying to be down about this, but I don't see any way we can uh, we can introduce uh, basically flipping everything on its head and saying here's a new way that we mm. could do things without it being a biodiversity credit. It would have to be the government dipping into their pockets, maybe reallocating money from the primary um, auctions or, or, or something like that to then go into the other space. I mean, what I have proposed and spoken to um, to officials and stuff in the past has been, um, you know, why don't we actually do like a contract for out contract for outcomes type scenarios that yes you would we would basically write a contract up and, and that contract would say in 50 years time we would have a full indigenous forest we, we but we, as we transition we would expect a basically a ratchet clause of how much carbon would be coming in so we could we could at least ensure that as we are using the exotic forestry to transition there's going to be enough money in that space to actually mm-hmm. do that transition so mm-hmm. it basically comes back to the earlier opportunity that i mentioned but actually getting the government to back it but um Again, you, you share some of that stuff with, with, with people and they look at you like almost like a possum in the headlights. Like, what is it? How are we going to do that? Um, it's just I guess hard. what's hard, hard for a non-forestry person to understand is why is there so much knowledge uh, and favour given towards exotic species for their carbon sequestration abilities uh, mm-hmm. when, when, when we know just how uh, tall, dense, mm-hmm. aged our kauris and our kahikatias can be, uh, and those native forests are fantastic carbon sequesterers. Uh, I I don't, from my point of view, I I guess I just don't understand why that is not an option when you are building, when when you're developing a carbon farm. Yeah, and I guess it comes back down to how it's measured. I mean, looking at it from a price point of view, and I will touch on this just for the people listening, is if I look at a single hectare, um, in the emissions trading scheme. If I plant that single hectare in Pinus radiata, um, even under our arrangement, which is like we pay for it and we do profit share, that one hectare over a 50-year period with radiata will sequester enough to generate $76,000 for you um, over that period of time. Now, if I flip it over to the natives and what MPI say our native forestry will sequester, you'll be lucky to get $15,000 for that same, uh, mm-hmm. for the same one hectare over a 50-year period of time. So when you look at... Um, and that's because of the place. slow, the, the slow. Sorry to interrupt, but that's because yeah. of the yep. slow and steady. You know, the, they're slower growing but longer living, mm-hmm. and that's the issue, right? Yeah, uh, I, I hear that quite a bit. Um, I mean, those eucalypts and those other species we plant will live for you know five, six hundred years quite comfortably, and they'll sequester four times the amount of carbon that an individual native will sequester over that period of time as well. But it's, I, I guess, what the the issue that we have is, is that we are measuring a single tree and comparing a single tree to a single tree. So mm-hmm. if I look at a, um, like there's an example, right, um, in Tikawiti where we have a, a farmer who's down there who's growing polonia, and he's got polonia in his farm that he's been growing for four years, 
and that polonia is nearly twice the girth, the height, as a 13-year-old Cody right next door to it. So we know from that, that one, that's just an example, mm. that the exotics, are, they do grow far, far quicker. And we talk about climate changes and everything like that. We have these urgent climate needs, a climate crisis. The opportunity is not to go out there and plant something that will take 100 years to catch up to what an exotic can do in 20 years' time. It's, it's about saying, okay, the exotic is needed now, and we will transition to that ideal scenario for a native, um, but we can't go out there from day one. And even if we introduce a biodiversity credit and these other things, you know, the impact of that is we are actually not sequestering as much carbon. Now, when it comes to those those trees that you mentioned, the Cody and the Kakatea and those other ones, yes, they do grow and they, they are good at sequestering carbon, um, but it's, it still isn't near what an exotic, exotic forestry does. And then we see these examples of looking over a native bush and saying, oh, look how much carbon is being sequestered here. Um, one, it's not being measured the same way that we measure under the MPI. So you're not comparing apples with apples all the time. Um, it's like, well, you know, we're measuring all the other things, that are, all the, the understory, all the things that are happening under those specific mm-hmm. trees. Now, mm-hmm. that's the issue. The issue mm-hmm. here is, yes, you know, if I look at a, um, a pine monoculture that's planted at 1,200 stems a hectare, so it's just been all, all the light wells are cut out, we're just growing pine, versus actually having something that's actually the light wells are pretty open. You've got a whole lot of native regeneration happening. You've got you know, a whole lot of different tiers of forestry occurring at a native level. Um, yes, you can go out there and say, oh, we've got 5,000 stems growing in that space. You might have punga tree here, kakatea over here, and da-da-da-da. <laughs> but yes, on aggregate, that native forestry block is sequestering as much carbon. But the, the issue that currently exists is we are comparing an individual tree to an individual tree um, and if in, in the space of if we then look at uh, um, consideration where we are planting exotics at a, at a reduced stocking rate and then that same thing is occurring underneath the canopy then if we're comparing that with that you know we, we're talking still a significant more carbon being sequestered by the exotic um, cover or the exotic mix in that scenario so yeah I think when you compare like for like either way um, the exotics are um, and, and you, you might get people sending me emails on this and whatever, but like, I'll point them to the data. <laughs> but like, it's just the reality of it. Um, exotics grow far quicker. Well, I tell I mean, you, who else? Like everything in this country, eh? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, but, but I think to... really quickly, yeah. Sorry, um, if I well, touch this. Okay, you go for it. Okay. Um, you look at anything in this country, right? Um, we look at um, a coda in a, in a stream. We look at um, a kiwi. We look at any, anything in this country. There was never really the environmental pressure on anything in New Zealand to have to grow quick, to have to reproduce quick, and to have to reproduce at scale. The only thing that really and to fly away um, quickly. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, and the only thing that really, um, you know, was were, were predated on some of these things were in our waterways was our tuna. But you know, Maori were able to live a sustainable lifestyle because the pressure they were putting on these species. Um, weren't growing that quickly. If I can then flip that on its head and say, okay, look at how we grow and all the species we've brought into New Zealand. Everything that we farm in New Zealand has had generations after generations of environmental pressure on it, and it's all exotic because there has been those pressures, and they breed quickly, and the goats breed quickly because you're over in the US or wherever it is, they're going to get eaten by a wolf or you know, or you know, in that space. So we've basically brought in these exotic species, which have a almost a um, a legacy of pressure that's been put on them which our natives didn't have. So when we look at New Zealand as a country, we're only talking about 200 years of real pressure since the colonisers arrived um, to actually say, okay, these are, these are, this is a, the, the world that we live in now. Things are, um, are being cut down and changed and we can't, can't grow as quick. It's, um, those environmental pressures didn't exist for anything in native in New Zealand, which is why they don't bounce back when they get depleted by population-wise that quickly. So 
well, I guess what I'm saying by that is, you know, the the, the thing that we, we people fail to understand is that we have brought species into this country or, you know, they have been brought into this country that grow quick and have grown quick over generations or have evolved to be that space to survive. Um, it's a natural selection principle, um, whereas in New Zealand they haven't had to do that. So things grow slower, things grow steadier, um, things are more sustainable at an endemic level in New Zealand. Um, but, yeah, we don't have that opportunity here i can't go out there and i can't put fertilizer on a cody to make it grow any quicker whereas if i chuck <laughs> a pine in my backyard it'll be four times the height and, and half as long i i take your point and I, i'm not disagreeing with you but i think mm. there's at least one of the gaps that has happened is the lack of knowledge around mm-hmm. uh, the science of of native nahiri and the work that uh, for instance uh, the tane's tree trust are doing to try and um bring some genuine scientific light onto those lookup tables to correct them because at the moment those lookup tables are based on very errant data which is basically you know scrubland rather than actually yeah. um uh rather than, so the work that Tane's tree trust are doing around totra for instance and establishing that actually in right conditions all the things you've described you know right mm-hmm. well managed lots of light well uh, and and uh, pest-controlled forest can actually bring up that sequestration uh, level to a much higher rate than what mm. is re- ex- um, you know, currently re- accredited mm. for in the in the lookup table. So at least one yeah. of the gaps that um, is relevant is just this lack of knowledge around what do we have here yeah, in, well, this, in this country. Exactly right. You look at the lookup tables and um, you'll see a column for Pinus radiata, you'll see a column for Douglas fir, and you'll see every, everything else classified as an exotic hardwood, softwood, or indigenous. So you can see pretty click, pretty clearly that there was enough data to actually come up with individual lookup tables for Douglas fir and Pinus radiata because that's where the investment and that's where the time has been spent. That goes right back to when in the South Island, you know, there was a lot of um, deforestation happening and people were trying to work out how we were going to replenish the forestry because the native forestry is not going to grow back quick enough to actually create a sustainable forestry program. So you know, they, they tried all the different species um, over here and Pinus radiata 1 quite clearly is the species that's been applied and since that point in time we've been engineering it as a country to grow on volcanic soils and sand country and um, even hybridising it down the south we hear about now. People are hybridising attenuata with radiata so now it grows in high alpine environments really well. So you know the amount of money that's been put into these pine, these pine are um, that tree is on steroids, and, and, and there's a very good reason for why they applied the way that they are because of all that investment in them. It's, it is, as you say, it's shown that we haven't invested in that space. Look, mm-hmm. I commend the work that Tony's Tree Trust are doing, and I would love to be doing some of that work myself, but the, the thing for us is that we have, you know, limited by the commercial nature of what we're trying to achieve, and I don't have time or I don't have the funding to operate in that same way. That being said, though, um, wherever we do go, we do plant natives around waterways and put the right tree in the, those other areas around erosion-prone country and stuff like that. So we aren't just going out there and spreading exotics. It's using an exotic baseline to cover, to generate the best returns. But, you know, we, we think we're planting about 50,000 tōtara and kahikatea and a number of, I think we'll be about a quarter of a million natives going out this planting season. So don't get me wrong, I, I fully firm and we, we fuck a papa to those those trees as Māori. Um, we, we agree that we would love to be planting indigenous forestry before exotics but the data that we have and the way that it's captured at the moment and the way that it's accepted mm. I think the, the hard part is, is the last part is, is the way that it's accepted is the issue um, mm. and again if we, if we were able to lie down over a forestry block and do some of that stuff and that was the way we measured carbon then um, 
you know, I think we'd be having a slightly different conversation. But as it stands, and comes back to the thing before, is we are comparing an individual tree in a plot versus another individual tree in a plot. And, um, yeah, that is the issue. But that mm-hmm. is the issue. That that's what we've got in the front of us. And we'll just try and fund and support landowners with that as the, as the means as it currently stands. Mm. Quite right, Well, You can only manage what you measure. So, well, well done, mm. Blair, on getting to this point. And we look forward to kind of seeing how you go in the next little while because I think this is a new emerging economy for New Zealand and for Māori and uh, there's so many things still to discover so um, please do stay in touch but thanks for joining us on this climate business and um, enohora Kia ora This Climate Business the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us 